passage kind of answered that about, uh, you know, don't yell. Yeah. Is that, is that what the... And the other thing is that... Uh, it, just in the style of practice, there was such an emphasis on naming every second or two, the, the mind is mentally noted, noting. And because it was really the, the technique as it got used in particular circles, it seems to me, this is my opinion, it seems to me was used for two purposes. One, for the purpose of wisdom, to see clearly what's happening. But two, as a, a means to develop deep states of concentration. Because when your teacher is demanding that you're noting moment by moment by moment, literally every second or two, you're mentally noting what's predominant, it uh, doesn't allow for much wandering if you're really doing it. So for those who can do it, they just that mental effort squeezes out distraction in a very powerful way and you can get very powerful states of concentration even though you're not focusing on any one object with this style of practice you're just noting whatever it is that's predominant but there is a lot of pushing in doing that like to really make the mind and so people would do it but they they weren't doing it with the right attitude and so you can tie yourselves in knots with this practice it's like any technique. There's always a shadow or a side effects, and uh, generally the side effects have to do with doing the technique with the wrong attitude. Just trying to get somewhere instead of wishing to understand things as they are. So, back to, oh yeah, say your name. Caroline. Caroline. The idea of naming a little tricky with what seems to pop up as a to-do list. Say a little bit more. So, so it feels like a to-do list as opposed to an emotional sort of thoughts. Yeah, but see, that's exactly that's a, a, a exactly that poignant place in practice where we know that we don't know and we know that we want to know what this is. So the mind is planning, or whatever you might call that. And you might just start by noting it, uh, like I said in response to Bob's comment, just note it, it with the first word that seems appropriate, because it will give you clarity. So you might just note that thinking. Like you could just start with that note, thinking. Thinking. Because then it's bringing, the mind is coming into focus. It's beginning to see, oh, this is what's happening. There is this mental activity. And then maybe after a few moments, maybe you note a couple times in 10, or 10 seconds or so thinking, and then maybe you're able to say, oh, planning. This is planning being known. Planning's like this. And you're, you know, you're not, and the hard thing about the noting is you're not trying to note in order to make it go away, although it might go away, but you're noting in order to understand it. And I found in my own practice it takes a lot of skill to be able to note in a way that isn't pushing the experience away, but is actually illuminating the experience. Now, sometimes when we're illuminating the experience, it, it loses the fuel, so it's, it comes and it goes and it's gone. But at least we didn't push it away. That's actually fine. And, and that generally happens the stronger or the more balanced mindfulness is, the more, the, as soon as you see an object, it tends to disappear. And that's fine. But 
it can look like we're doing that, but actually what we're doing is using it to push it away. It's like I, if I say planning loud enough, then planning becomes predominant, and there's and I can't do both. I can't think I'm planning and plan at the same time. So now I'm thinking that I was planning instead of actually planning. And then people wonder, well, where did the planning go? <laughs> Here I am naming it, but there's... I'm, and so there's, this is a, one of the problems with the practice. It has to be done with a real light touch in the service of wanting to understand. That's the key. Noting is in the service of understanding what's happening, not in the service of controlling what's happening. So then, then you might like it. So then it's gone like the planning is gone and so you're not noting anything but even in the even after it's finished as an activity in hindsight a few seconds after you might just have the visceral sense that you were planning in order to make something good a good future happen you know and then you might just notice the telltale signs of desire desiring wanting things to be other than they are or you may notice you're planning to avoid something you don't like, to get rid of something you don't like, and then you might notice the telltale signs of aversion. And if that's there, that you can intuit that, then just think, oh yeah, that was aversion. And then come back to your anchor, come back to the present moment, the body's a good place then, once you've sort of clarified what had just happened, then just start over again with the body. <coughs> So let's spend a little time with uh, craving, a little bit more time with craving, and feel free to ask questions as we go along. Sensual desires. Remember, there are three kinds of craving. Craving for sensual experiences, sensual pleasures in particular, of course. Craving to become somebody. Craving for things to be done, something to be done to, for cessation. And last last couple of weeks, we talked also just as a quick review that what you know when we ask the question, what actually disturbs or distorts the mind? Is it the experience, or is it the mind's reaction to the experience? And this is that discourse with Chitta, the layperson, where he talks about what yokes the two ox together is the yoke. What yokes. Uh, you know, aversion or greed to experience. It isn't the sight we're seeing or the eye that's seeing the sight. It's what arises in conjunction with that sense contact, that sense experience. And so that's what the hindrance is. It's not about being sensitive and it's not about the actual experiences that are being known. It's about what arises in conjunction with that. So we want to keep that in mind. The Buddha says that when the mind is defiled, or we could say under the influence of these five hindrances, (coughs) these five distorting tendencies of the mind, remember he was using that example of gold being contaminated with other metals. He says mind is neither pliable, nor workable, nor bright, and not rightly composed for the destruction of the taints. So when the mind is hindered under the influence of greed, aversion, restlessness, dullness, or doubt, then it can't do the one thing the mind really needs to do. 
which is to see clearly the way things are because that's being hindered by the hindrances in another place I think the Dhammapada the Buddha says there's no burning like desire no grip like anger no net like delusion and um, one of the things that uh, can be problematic for us as we get interested, learn about and get interested in the five hindrances and start paying attention in this way, it can easily feel overwhelming because it's like there's always hindrances. And uh, it feels like we want to give up. But I think the, the approach, the attitude should be even though it's, it is in a sense overwhelming, it's a big job. And in a way, it's appropriate to, have, to be a bit in awe of how many defilements or hindrances are arising in our minds. But to see that this very uh, challenging task to recognize the hindrances and not be confused by them, that that's actually the easy way. The hard way the hard way of living is to somehow not be interested in the hindrances or not believe there are any hindrances or that they're going to go away on their own without more deeply understanding them. And like I mentioned last week, this discourse the Buddha gave, craving is like being in debt. Ill will is like being terribly sick. Sleepiness is being imprisoned. Restlessness is as if enslaved. And doubt is like being in danger, like lost in a dangerous place. So not addressing the hindrances means living in an ongoing well way in that hell, that hell realm of being in prison, being enslaved, being sick, being in danger, being in debt. So even though it's overwhelming, it's nice to cultivate this attitude of our hindrances as our teachers. They are going to teach us how the mind gets in its own way. How the mind is always getting in its own way, causing its own problems. And actually, the more we see this, it's very empowering because this we can do something about. I can't do things necessarily, at least not too much, with the whole world or with my partner or with my friends or with common ground. I mean most external things have a lot of their own momentum and our contribution is generally relatively small but the way that the mind hinders itself confuses itself that's something we can do something about way back in 1994 actually it was earlier oh no no I guess it was 1994 I'm not sure where I saw this but anyway there's this cartoon some of you have seen before I meant to leave one out on the table in the entranceway, but it shows a little human-like creature sitting in the darkness, and it says, hmm, what's that? And then the next frame is, looks good. <laughs> I want it. That's this one. I've got to have it. It's getting a little bit more animated. If I do not have it, I shall die. <laughs> ah! 
you know how we build that head of steam until we collapse we regroup and then again it's what's that <laughs> and that's that story about the wish fulfilling tree I think I mentioned last week where we can imagine all kinds of wonderful things I mean who hasn't imagined winning the lottery and what you would do with the money or if not the lottery that you just somehow give myself away you know came upon you know a suitcase filled with money from some drug lord you know that escaping the police had thrown into the woods and there you were hiking <laughs> and there's a suitcase unmarked hundred dollar bills lots of them all the good we could do with that money and this is what our mind can do it can imagine all kinds of wonderful things and we can get lost in that and then we were so beat up literally beat up by the craving by the wanting by the possibilities that eventually it's such a heavy load we put it down in exhaustion and then once we're feeling better however long that takes we take a bath go to bed wake up the next day and then it, it's all over again hmm, what's that what's that person got what might I do with this life and this is endemic in meditation or people who practice because if you do the practice if you really in an integrated way take up the different practices you're going to start feeling better in life and when we feel better we think oh I can do that we feel ambitious in a way because our energy is good because we're doing the practice and we're dropping the toxic ways of being and so we feel better and what do we do? We pick up toxic ways of being because we feel better. And so there's a lot of crashing and burning among serious practitioners because they're not being mindful when they feel good. They're only being mindful when they feel bad. And they come to practice. I mean, and, you know, it's been an interesting place to be in the middle of this organization because I see people coming and going. Some of you are those people who have come for a while life was really hard difficult for whatever reason and you became quite devoted to your practice and you know maybe showed up at Camgrown or someplace else and really religious with your practice and then you started to feel better in life and you became more productive and more functional and who needs practice and so we stopped practicing only to eventually get into another hole of one form or another so the key is when we're feeling good to continue to practice. Otherwise we'll get attached to that good feeling and we'll start spinning out futures, becoming, wanting. One of the metaphors the Buddha uses quite often is this feeding and starving. I mentioned it briefly last week and you can find it in the last two columns in the chart that Andy Olensky put together. So I sent you out the link to the Insight Journal. Now this journal is only online. You can go to the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies and sign up to receive this monthly full moon journal, Insight Journal. Um, and uh, there's generally one or two articles online that you can get in, uh, in the journal now. But anyway, several years ago, Andy put this together on the hindrances. And he's just quoting, he's just uh, organizing some discourses from the Buddha. And this is very useful. So 
one of the ways the Buddha talks not just about the hindrances but also about the factors of awakening, the wholesome qualities that balance the mind and lead inevitably to insight is understanding, you know, it's always about cause and effect. What feeds this wholesome or unwholesome quality of mind? What starves it? So it just means we've paid enough attention to the dynamic of the mind to understand what does the mind do that promotes the arising of aversion, that starves aversion and causes it to go away. So, now you might know this already from your own study, but just from our own experience, what does the mind do to feed craving? For example, right now, and we can even experiment, what could you do right now with your mind to water, to support and strengthen craving as a quality in your mind? What could you do? Feel dissatisfied? Yeah. Yeah, like something's missing. Yeah. Yeah. The absence of contentment. So that's how we could starve craving, is by feeling content. Paying attention to contentment. Like, I may, I may not be content in this particular um, part of my experiencing, like the pain in my knee. If I focus on that, it's going to bring up a feeling of discontentment, like I don't like feeling this way, I would like to have a different body or something. That maybe there's something in our experience now that is satisfying or is neutral at least and maybe we can pay attention to that. The traditional formulation is I know, the Buddha says, I know of no other uh, single thing of such power to cause the arising of sense desire if not already arisen or if arisen to cause its development to and increase as the thought of beauty. And one who gives careless attention to the thought of beauty, sense desire, if not already arisen, arises, or if already arisen, is liable to increase and expand as the thought of beauty. Now that's an interesting thing. So, but he's saying... Uh, who gives one who gives careless attention to the thought of beauty it's important so there's two things we keep in mind around craving careless attention and objects that are beautiful to the thought of this being beautiful so it's not about uh, although it sometimes is useful not to look at beautiful things but it's the thought of beauty like so when we see something that's beautiful the mind is attending to the thought that this is beautiful. And it's attending to the thought this is beautiful in an improper way, meaning it's taking it personally. If we attend to something that's beautiful and we see it as just nature, well, it's not going to trigger craving. So it needs both wrong view and that particular object, the thought this is beautiful. That's the object. This is beautiful. I want it. So just notice that there, if you're dealing with craving and it's causing you harm, maybe causing the others harm, but you continue to attend to the thought, this is beautiful, and you attend to that thought 
from the point of, from a personal point of view, taking it personally, that thought, then the burning of craving of sense desire is going to increase. We're literally like that first um, simile we read. I read uh, the first week about what is it? The forty carts of wood. You know, we're feeding the fire. We're throwing fuel into the fire of desiring, and it's burning. The mind is going to keep coming back to the thought, this is beautiful, and it's going to keep relating to it from that place of, I don't have enough, I want that. There's this empty hole here, that will fill it up. And that keeps going. And the more we look at it, the more there's an empty hole here, seemingly an empty hole here. We might have felt relatively content but once we're in this cycle, in a matter of few moments, we can feel not content at all. And that's the amazing thing about desire, is how, and we don't see it this way, we don't, we're not careful enough to see how by, uh, we could be relatively content having a good day, but then we bump into some experience, see something we don't have, and then attend to it improperly, and we can be in a lot of pain. We can feel really bad about our life for a long time, even though it wasn't bothering us forever. But now it suddenly bothers us. I see. I see that happening to me sometimes. Um, you know, I'm feeling having a good day, but then I just find out about somebody else who's had some success in their life, and it's just so interesting to see how lousy I can feel. I mean, I don't, I'm pretty good about not dwelling on it. You know, one of the fruits of having practice consistently is when my mind starts to suffer, it stands out. And so I generally, you know, the practice kicks in. Like, wait a minute, there's no reason to be suffering. So what's going on? What is the mind doing? It isn't the fact that this person has had success. That is not the cause for suffering. The cause for suffering is something the mind is doing right now. And I'll look, you know, and I'll see either the craving or the aversion. And so, now we can probably guess what is the way of starving craving. And the Buddha says, I know of no other single thing of such power to prevent the arising of sense desire, if not already arisen, or if arisen, to cause its abandonment as the thought of non-beauty in one who gives careful attention as opposed to not careful, careless attention for one who gives careful attention to the thought of non-beauty sense desire if not already arisen does not arise or if arisen is abandoned the careful thought of non-beauty the careful careful attention rather to the thought of non-beauty, the careful attention to the thought of non-beauty. Now you'll have this. You might. I, I really recommend that you print this out so you can come back to these. The way that that Andy Olensky organized these um, different talks or different paragraphs from the Buddhist talks, different talks. So let's experiment with that. So like when we are in a time when there is a lot of craving. How can we give careful attention to the thought of non-beauty? So what is non-beauty? It means that the different objects we're seeing, we're not 
focusing on how it's beautiful. Because in any object, whatever it is, I mean, you can take the bowl of your favorite ice cream and you can focus on uh, the parts you like or you can focus on the parts you like less or that you don't care so much about. Like the color. You know, there's a lot of delicious ice cream that doesn't look particularly special. Right? (laughs) So you could just look at that like it looks like old oatmeal sometimes. And you could just, you could really attend to the neutrality of the visual image. Carefully. Bringing attention. And lust would go away. You would not be craving it. But if you're thinking about the smoothness, the fattiness, the sweetness, or whatever about the ice cream, then the mind will have a different response. I mean, I, I work with this a lot in terms of projects because I have a tendency to, you know, have ideas that seem great. So I train my mind to really see the work that actually is involved, the complications that are involved. And I I can build huge castles in the sky, and now I've become quite skilled at picking them apart. And now I'm not afraid to get excited about things, because I can take it apart, and I will. As soon as it starts getting painful, then I, I I just look, and now I don't need it anymore. So we can get to a place of really like exploring how beautiful something might be, but then really looking at all of the complications, all of the neutral or unpleasant, non-beautiful aspects of that, looking skillfully and seeing that this is also true. This is also part of the package. You can do this with um, attractions you have to other people where you're not denying that in this way, in that way, this person is quite attracted, attractive to you but you can also look at these other aspects and see it's just a human being with intestinal gas or (laughs) with blemishes or uh, she or he will have their own sort of opinions that will be different than mine own ways of doing things that will be different than mine and that will be irritating and we can reflect on that and it takes the diluted charge out of objects, whatever they might be. So we start to be able to live more regularly with equanimity. It's not about being averse to life. It's about balancing the distortion of greed, of craving, of lust in the mind. Because lust puts a particular spin on things. Uh, Wynn and I went with some good friends to look at a property the other day. You know, and it's and this is one of the places where I've seen this so often in my mind, you know, the sort of possibilities, and then the taking it apart, you know, really understanding the different complications, and really getting to a neutral place. If it happens, great. If it doesn't happen, great. And this is what we have to do with craving, with aversion. You know, it's just the opposite, and we'll talk about this next week with aversion, but you might as well look at it. So I know of no other single thing of such power to cause the arising of ill will, if not already arisen, or if arisen, to cause its development and increase as a thought of dislike. 
One, in one who gives careless attention to the thought of dislike, ill will, if not already risen, arises, if already arisen, it's liable to increase and expand. So again, who gives careless attention to the thought of dislike. Now, think about how many times in the last week, reading the news, listening to the news, and you're hearing about somebody you don't like, doing something you don't like what they've done, and how easy it is to give careless attention to the thought of not liking that person. And how very quickly there builds this head of steam, how stupid that person, how somebody should, you know, punish that person or show them how wrong they are or put them in their place or whatever it might be. We do it with our partners and our friends. When we carelessly attend to the thought of dislike, what we dislike, it really matters what we pay attention to. And this, I think, is just generally disconcerting for us because we don't like, I mean, the ego doesn't like the fact of how, con- how constructed <coughs> our world is. I mean, it really arises according to what we pay attention to and how we pay attention. And we could have a very different world if we pay attention to different objects. So the opposite of paying attention to what we dislike would be to, in a careful, in a skillful way, pay attention to what we do like. In other words, to be kind. <coughs> one who gives careful attention to the thought of loving-kindness. I care about you. Then when we do that, it's not possible to be swept away with aversion. So we can be experimenting. Of course, there's that same way of starving and feeding each of the five hindrances, and you can read that. Go ahead. So if doubt is what's really operating in your life, go immediately to the last one, to doubt, and really memorize the, this particular teaching and then put, bring it on the road in daily life and in your sit and really look at how your mind is feeding the doubt or how your mind could instead experiment with starving the doubt. Yeah, Jimmy. Well, just when you were giving the example of you know building the castles and then taking them down, I, I was thinking as a person who... Uh, really tends to reside in doubt and feed doubt a lot. I was thinking about that and just thinking, to me, I could see that as just really as a way of feeding doubt, you know, to like, I just have a tendency to do that, of like, okay, I can see all these positive things, but then I can tear them down, and then that just gets me into the cycle of of doubting, well, what is the, you know, what way should I be going, what is the reality? where are things at it's like so easy to be just kind of overwhelmed with the doubt of it all right but that so just to go to doubt right now I'll just skip to the main part Uh, careless attention oh in one who gives careless attention uh, let's see where's the sentence to cause an increase as careless attention. Oh yeah, so they just say careless attention. The Buddha says careless attention versus one who gives careful attention. So just, there wouldn't be doubt if it was careful enough attention. Yeah, because what will careful attention reveal? It's going to reveal the circular thinking. 
like the mind isn't resolving anything. And the mind will just go quiet. It will cease the circular thinking. That's what careful attention. Careless attention will make it seem, because the mind is superficial, that it's important to figure this out. And so that's why it keeps going. It keeps thinking in a circular or an unproductive way because it feels strongly that I need to get to the end. And it's like literally chasing its tail. I bet I've had this experience, and I bet others have too, where the mind very clearly sees this activity of chasing one's own tail. And uh, it's a particular kind of suffering. Doubt is a particular kind of suffering of chasing our own tail thinking in a way that doesn't go anywhere except to cause stress. And I feel like what the practice has done for me is to be able to recognize that and just say, okay, just stop. And so I'm much better at that. But And that's a real act of faith, isn't it? So you might reflect on how faith allows you to let go of this unproductive, worrying thinking and to be in the unknown, like to be okay with the unknown. Because part of what drives doubt, the circular thinking, is some idea that there's personal meaning to be figured out here. And I won't stop until I have my personal meaning. (laughs) And the thing is that there's a huge assumption, like that there is something personally meaningful here. (coughs) Or maybe what's actually meaningful is that this could be dropped. You know, that the mind is okay with things unformed. Ajahn um, Panawato's article that I sent out, The Wisdom of Samadhi, has some nice things to say about craving. <clears throat> you might want to read through it. Just about how this craving is the way it's just so predominant and how our initial work with craving is going to be really messy. And this is just generally true with all of the hindrances because initially we're going to begin investigating craving while under the influence of craving. It's not like we immediately drop into a perfectly balanced state unaffected by craving and observe craving. When we really see craving initially, we're really caught by it. When you look at doubt, you're going to already you're going to still rather be under the influence of it. So whatever the particular hindrance for you is most predominant, you are going to be uh, confused by it. But just as best we can, in that confusion, to, to begin to see how it's being fed, how it can be starved. And just really experiment with naming it, especially the predominant qualities, or mind states rather, that uh, hinder the mind or hinder clarity in, mo- in the mind. Maybe I'll just end. We have a few minutes left sharing a few things from um, uh, Joseph Goldstein's talk because it, he offers some really functional uh, ways to practice with craving. And remember I sent out last week, uh, maybe a week, uh, two weeks ago, some notes that Mark Young wrote up on, upon listening to Joseph Goldstein's talk on the hindrances and the talk he gave on desiring. 
And so the Buddha, or rather uh, Joseph mentions in, from the Buddhist teachings five ways to practice abandoning sense craving. Recognize sense desire when it arises, right? And so in all the different forms, addictive behaviors, craving, recurrent fantasies, internal reveries, expectations of future events. So to not recognize these activities as these activities means we're lost in them. So anytime we're tripping about the future in any way, we want to recognize that immediately as craving. The mind wouldn't be thinking about the future if craving isn't involved. So see if you can go right from the content of the thinking of the future to the feeling or the experience of craving. And remember his instructions, Joseph's instructions were, were recognize, don't act out, don't believe the thought, I can't practice until the hindrance goes away. It's like, just let me finish this fantasy, then I'll practice. Let me finish this thought, then I'll practice. And the last one, and in some ways the most important instruction, let the hindrances reveal themselves. So in this space of the mind, the way we transform the hindrances is through understanding, not through control. The second way we practice is recognize when the hindrances are absent. We learn a lot when, like if judgment or different forms of aversion being critical is the predominant hindrance in our mind, Notice when the mind isn't under the influence of aversion. Notice that happy, the happiness of the absence of aversion. Like Thich Nhat Hanh calls them the non-tutics in life. Because the, the, the importance, even if it's a rare event, the importance of really tasting, really knowing the experience of non-greed or non-aversion or non-doubt is when the doubt comes back, we're going to more quickly recognize it because we know what non-doubt is like, then we'll know in the earlier stages when doubt's back or aversion or craving is back. Third thing Joseph mentions is understand how sense desire arises. So again, the cause and effect. So when we're not mindful of sense objects, like not paying attention, that's what you're going to, one of the things you're going to find. When the mind is not mindful, we get caught in sense desires or any of the five hindrances. Um, when we just fall into habit, like sometimes when we're bored, we'll just start craving something, fantasizing something we want as a way of juicing up our life. There's a great line from a famous Japanese poet from long ago. Even in Kyoto, I long for Kyoto when I hear the cuckoo sing. It's like we can be in a beautiful place, fantasizing about being in a beautiful place. You know, it could even be the surf. We're sitting, you know, on the proverbial beautiful beach somewhere in the tropics. And the sound of the surf, you know, or the warmth of the sun reminds us of how nice it is when we're in beautiful places. And we'll crave being in a beautiful place, being in that beautiful place. This is how the strength of habit. So we, when we don't pay attention, we end up falling into one of the hindrances just through the force of habit. If we've done this craving 
this critical mind, aversive mind thing enough times, it will just arise out of habit. And then, you know, you see these three things are overlapping. The third way it arises is this basic, Joseph says, this basic misperception about what brings happiness. If we think happiness arises in terms of craving through getting something, then we're going to keep thinking of something that will bring us, make us happy. But if we think happiness comes from being content with what we have, well, then we're going to look for happiness in a different place, like noticing how we can be content with what we have. I mean, I could easily whip up discontentment with the clothes that I have, with the car that I have, with the body that I have, with the intelligence that I have, with the center that I have, with the, you know, Buddhist lineage that I have. I could, I really, I could, I could whip up discontent. Or I could, I could, by paying attention to different objects with a different attitude, I could whip up a lot of contentment for the center that I'm part of, for the Buddhist lineage that I'm part of, for the body that I have, for the life that I have, the clothes that I have. I could feel really content just noticing, being grateful. We bring a lot of attention to gratefulness, we start feeling grateful. We bring a lot of attention to a sense of lack, we have a very big sense of lack. And then just two more to mention briefly, and again, you have this, you can print yourself a copy, it's a nice set of notes, or even better, go to Dharma Seed, find this talk, the title's right there, and you can listen to this talk that Joseph gave about five years ago on uh, the de- hindrance of desire. So the last two, know how to remove a risen sensual desire, where well, we just talked about how we starve it by bringing careful attention to the non-beauty, to the thought of non-beauty. So we're looking at objects, either we're taking our attention away, like if it's a very seductive object and it's not easy for us to see it in neutral terms, then don't look at it. Look at something else that we can see in neutral terms. And remember, this is skillful medicine. It's not about being aversive. It's about noticing non-beauty instead of being lustful about beauty. And in Buddhism, it's really about seeing the impermanent, insubstantial, and personal nature of phenomena. So that's another way. If you have enough stability, you can look at the object you were formerly unskillfully looking at the beautiful qualities and start looking with wisdom and see it as an impermanent, insubstantial, unsatisfying uh, object. Meaning that true happiness does not arise from grasping this object. We're not saying it's bad. We're just saying unsatisfying means that grasping this relationship, grasping this idea, grasping this sense experience doesn't lead to meaningful happiness. That's all. That's what we mean by unsatisfying. And then the last one, know how to prevent the future arising of sense desire through guarding the sense doors. Like, if we know that I go to this place and I always get caught up in a lot of craving, well, until wisdom is really strong, don't go to that place. You know, this is a common 
teaching for anybody who has addictive patterns, you know, first and foremost, don't put yourself anywhere close where you, in the past, were engaged in that behavior or that addiction. The Buddha suggests moderation in food, association with wise friends, or like Janet was suggesting earlier, contentment, wanting what we have. Instead of wanting what we don't have, imagine if we had just as strong of habit of wanting what we don't have, except it was wanting what we have. I mean, we could cultivate that gratitude, wanting what we have, appreciating what we have. So next week we'll have, uh, uh, we'll be looking at aversion. But in the small groups, you might want to bring up any of the hindrances that are particularly strong. I sent out some reflections just to help focus your your sharing in the small group next week. So you can take a look at those reflections. Of course, you might come up with your own, and that would be great. And uh, so we'll spend half of the, we'll do our sit, then uh, talk about aversion, and then the last half an hour we'll have our small groups. So let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. I appreciate being here with these wonderful teachings, appreciative of our spiritual ancestors, the women and men who have shared their practice over the centuries. And each of us, in our own way, inspired to be part of this lineage of people doing the practice, having insight, realizing wisdom and compassion, and then living it out in, into the world in our own particular ways. So may this be so. And thanks to Bob and Jenny, who are our program hosts, if you want to help them bring the chairs down or close up. You can just see either Jenny or Bob over here. And uh, let's see if there's anything else. I think that's it. Any announcements people have? Great. See you next Monday, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.